Larry, thank you, thank you. You know, as a young communicator myself, it's such an honor uh, and a privilege, um, an opportunity to, to get to develop uh, underneath leadership that is actively engaging all generations and really empowering the gifts of others. And so I'm deeply thankful uh, for the leadership of Larry Sitzig and the other elders on the board. And since this is our last Sunday in the classic venue, I think a lot of people um, could use a round of applause and thankfulness for us. Larry Sitzig and the elder board, John Tabay and the worship team. So could we give them all just a round of applause? Um, it's been a real, a real joy of mine uh, to be able to week in and week out uh, be here with you and to share and to learn from God's word with you. And since Larry stole my introduction, I have to just begin uh, with a question. Uh, how many of you love celebrations? Just by, by a show of hands, and just we're going to do a little crowd interaction this morning. What's your favorite celebration? What kind of event is your favorite? Weddings. Birthdays. Christmas. You say Groundhog Day? Yes, that's right. I love celebrations. Celebrations are one of the, the, the things that make life fun and meaningful. Growing up in high school, uh, one of my favorite celebrations uh, were pep rallies at high school. And not necessarily because I love the pep of the rally, but because I got out of school for about two hours on pep rally days. And they were a ton of fun, but oftentimes stressful for me as well. I was the class president at the time, and so I was in charge of the pep rally. I had a team of people, and we were responsible for making sure that no detail was overlooked. And, and so one of the um, disgruntling things about pep rallies were when you were throwing pep rallies for teams that you knew were not going to win. Have you ever been to one of those pep rallies? You were, you were at a pep rally for a team you knew wasn't going to win. Uh, now, being from Oklahoma, uh, the high school I went to, we had a great legacy of winning, especially in football. Uh, when it came to the state championship game, it was always our high school, Union High School, versus the neighboring high school, Jinx High School. And one of my favorite rallies of all time wasn't necessarily the pep rallies leading up to the game. It was the celebration rally if we won the state game. Not only did we get a couple hours outside of school, but we knew that we weren't having a pep rally for a team that was going to lose. We were actually celebrating a victory. Now, are there any uh, Denver Bronco fans in the house? There's one right there in the back. So you know you know that just a few weeks ago, after the Denver Broncos won the Super Bowl, they had a giant celebration rally in Denver, a big parade. And you see the coaches, you see the quarterback, you see the team. It's this massive, massive celebration of victory. But you know that you can't have the celebration rally until you experience victories along the way. It begins in preseason. And in the regular season, and in the playoffs, and then finally that celebration rally, that celebration parade. You know, for the past several weeks here in the Classic Venue, we've been in a series called Jesus, a vision for the church. And it's been for the month uh, of March as we anticipate and prepare for Easter Sunday. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we did Jesus, a vision for the church, the birth of a king. Last week, we talked about the teaching of this king, proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom of God was near. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about this celebration rally of the king, if you will. Historically in church history, they call today 
Palm Sunday. And, and Palm Sunday celebrates the moment when Jesus returns to Jerusalem as king. Now, what's interesting about the gospel accounts and Jesus returning to Jerusalem as king is that all of the gospel writers talk about this event. Now, when you read the gospel accounts, you read of Matthew, of Mark, of Luke, and John, their experience and their community's experience of Jesus. And sometimes the gospel writers overlap. Sometimes they don't. For instance, uh, Matthew and Luke are the only two gospels that record the birth of Jesus. But even in recording the birth of Jesus, they talk about different aspects of the birth of Jesus. Luke talks about the wise men coming to visit Jesus. Matthew talks about the shepherds. Mark and John don't talk about the birth of Jesus. There are some miracles that are in Mark, Matthew, and Luke, but not in John. There are some miracles that are just in Mark and not in the rest. And this doesn't make the Gospels contradictory, but they're all recollecting different experiences and aspects of the life and ministry of Jesus. The same is true for us. In our marriages, we can oftentimes look at our marriages and and each of our spouses, they'll have a different take of, man, that moment was really meaningful for me. And your spouse say, really? I didn't didn't know that. A meaningful moment for me was this. And your spouse will respond, oh, that's so interesting. But for you and your spouse, I can almost guarantee you there's a moment that you both agree this was one of the foundational markers of our marriage. The same is true of a family. You can, you can survey the mom and the dad and the kids and the parents, and they can all say, man, this was a moment that I really remember about our family. And maybe the mom and the dad remember, and the kid's like, oh, I don't even, oh, now I remember, but that wasn't as significant to me. But for every family, there's that one holiday. There's that one vacation. There's that one moment that they all recognize this was pivotal and foundational for the development of our family. When it comes to the life of Jesus, when it comes to what church history calls Holy Week, when it comes to Palm Sunday, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all agree that this moment of Jesus returning to Jerusalem as king was foundational and fundamental to understanding what Jesus was doing. Uh, in fact, they're all recorded here if you want to write these down. Um, this is on the iPad. Uh, and the, the title is the same in all of the Bibles. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. You can find it in Matthew chapter 21, 1 through 11. Mark chapter 11, 1 through 11. Luke chapter 19, 28 to 44. And John chapter 12, 12 to 19. For all the gospel writers, this moment, Holy Week, Palm Sunday was foundational for understanding Jesus and what he was doing. This was the first century celebration rally. This was the first century Denver Bronco parade when they won the Super Bowl. This was the event of celebrating that Yahweh was returning to Zion. In fact, that's one of the major themes of the prophets in the Old Testament. They believed that Yahweh was coming back to Zion and it was going to begin when Yahweh installed his Messiah, his anointed one, his king back on the throne in Israel. But just like all celebration rallies, all celebration parades, there are events that lead up to it. And so before we actually can understand Palm Sunday as recorded by the gospel writers, we have to begin to the event just before it. 
especially in the book of Mark. Mark records a story about a blind man. Now, we'll call him Blind Bart. His name is Blind Bartimaeus. Uh, but, but Blind Bartimaeus was blind. And when you were blind, it wasn't like being blind today. It doesn't matter what um, century or decade you were blind in. Being blind is a difficult mode of existence. But especially in the first century in Jewish society, uh, you didn't have the advantages that we have today. In fact, if you were blind in the first century, they believed it was because of the sin of your parents that you were perpetuating this sin. You were being punished for the sins that had come before you. You were considered unclean. As a result, you weren't to be married. You weren't to be part of a robust family. You weren't to have a job. You had no access to resources or to education, and so you were left simply to beg. And so in the first century, you have this story of blind Bartimaeus, and he sits at the gates of Jericho. Jericho is one of the predominant cities in the area. A day in and day out, blind Bartimaeus, he would sit at the city gates because it's where the most traffic was. It's where people would come in and out, families, moms and dads, people buying and selling goods. It was your best opportunity to get as much money as possible if people chose to be generous that day. And so day in and day out, blind Bartimaeus, he would sit at these city gates with this this cloak in his lap, begging as people would walk by. Now, one specific day as the gospel writers record this event, there's there's a bustle at the city gates. There's the shuffling of feet. There's, there's, there's the murmuring. There, there's a lot of activity at the city gates, but blind Bartimaeus doesn't know what's going on, but he can tell something momentous is happening at the city gates. Uh, the gospel writers record that blind Bartimaeus learns that it's Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Jesus of Nazareth at the time, he's a rabbi. And we're talking about one of the moments in the life of Jesus in which his fame is larger than it's ever been. And so here at one of the largest cities in the area, Jesus is about to leave Jericho for Jerusalem. But before a rabbi would leave a city after staying there, they would stop at the city gates to teach. Uh, They would stop here at the city gates simply because uh, once they left the city, uh, this rabbi and whoever his followers were, they wouldn't be able to teach because they'd be walking. The group of people would get spread out as they would go to the next city. And so a rabbi would always stop at the city gates to teach. Now, when the gospel writers begin to record the crowd that surrounds Jesus beginning at Jericho and into Jerusalem, it doesn't just talk about it as a multitude of people. It talks about this group of people as one of the largest crowds that ever surrounds Jesus. And so if you're imagining this scene, you imagine one of the largest, most prestigious cities in the area. You imagine a rabbi who's the most famous rabbi in all of the land. His fame is at its pinnacle. He's at his peak at this moment. And so you can imagine that Jesus isn't just surrounded by his 12 disciples. He is surrounded by probably hundreds and hundreds of people that want to hear the words of this famous rabbi. But Jesus doesn't have monitors to put what he's saying on screens. He doesn't have microphones to project his voice. And so you can imagine these hundreds of people, if they want to hear what Jesus has to say, they're going to crowd in as close as they can around Jesus, neglecting blind Bartimaeus that sits at these gates. 
So here's this scene. Jesus, this rabbi, is about to leave, and, and hundreds of people are, are leaned in to listen to what Jesus is about to say. Her blind Bartimaeus, when Jesus leaves, blind Bartimaeus doesn't want to stay. He wants to follow Jesus. He wants to be able to do what the crowd is about to do. But blind Bartimaeus will not be able to follow Jesus unless he can see. The crowd isn't going to be compassionate or generous enough to carry blind Bartimaeus along the way. And so this crowd, this crowd of hundreds of people, it's gathered around Jesus as Jesus begins to teach. And then blind Bartimaeus interrupts the scene. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd turns around and rebukes blind Bartimaeus. How dare you interrupt our teacher? But blind Bartimaeus doesn't want to be left beside, left, be left behind. So again, he shouts at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, blind Bartimaeus, <coughs> he's on to something. He's calling Jesus <coughs> by the title, son of David. Mean that he believes that Jesus is not just a person, a king in the line of David. He is the king of the line of David. And Jesus is about to make his triumphant return to Jerusalem to inaugurate this, this prophetic procession of Yahweh returning to Zion. And so even though he is rebuked twice, blind Bartimaeus, at the top of his lungs, he shouts again, Jesus, son of David, King of Israel, have mercy on me. The crowd turns again to rebuke Bartimaeus. But before they can, Jesus says, Hold, bring him to me. This is the moment blind Bartimaeus has been waiting for. The demeanor of the crowd turns instantly. Instead of rebuke, they look at blind Bartimaeus. Say, Bartimaeus, cheer up. He's calling for you. Wow. He can't see anything. He just hears the words of the people. So the text says they, they pick up blind Bartimaeus and they carry blind Bartimaeus to Jesus. And they set Bartimaeus at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, Bartimaeus, what do you want from me? He says, Jesus, I want to follow you. I don't want to stay here at the gates. I want to go with the people wherever you are going. I want to go with you to Jerusalem. Jesus, I want to see. Jesus says, Bartimaeus, your faith has healed you. The text says instantly the eyes of Bartimaeus are opened. And he's able to see. The Gospel of Mark records this as the event directly before Jesus returns to Jerusalem. And so here you have this scene. You have Jesus at the city gates of Jericho. He's surrounded by his 12 disciples. He's surrounded by the hundreds of people that want to hear what he has to say. And now he's with blind Bartimaeus as well. And now this is a group of hundreds of people. They leave the gates of Jericho to go to Jerusalem. As they travel, there's a little bit of expectation in the crowd. Is this, is this the one that we've been waiting on? 
Is this, is this the true rightful king of the Jews? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one that will make all things new? So they begin to travel towards Jerusalem. And as they get close to Jerusalem, maybe a few miles away, Jesus holds up his hands and stops the crowd. He says, hold. You can imagine the crowd wants to know what's going on. But Jesus, he simply calls a couple of his disciples to himself. And he gives them instructions. Go to the nearest town. Find a donkey. Find a colt and bring them to me. Now, he, he probably doesn't say this out loud. He, he just says it to the disciples. And, and these disciples run off. And in the meantime, Jesus, miles outside of Jerusalem, is surrounded by hundreds of people, simply waiting. The text says that the disciples run to this town and they find a colt. They find a donkey that has never been ridden. Just as Jesus said they would. He, they begin to untie the donkey and the master comes out and says, what are, you, what are you doing with these? And they simply reply, the Lord is in need of them. The master's quick to be generous, to give this colt and this donkey that have never been ridden. And so the disciples take the colt and the donkey and they return it to Jesus. And you can imagine the crowd. You're sitting in the desert wondering what's going on. Why have we stopped? And then this colt and this donkey are being returned by the disciples. And as soon as the crowds would have seen this, their anticipation level would have begun to rise. The idea of Yahweh returning to Zion on a colt and on a donkey was deeply prophetic of the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, it begins as early as Genesis In Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 and 11, uh, the the author is prophesying over the tribe of Judah. They're prophesying over a ruler that will come from Judah. This is Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11. He says, the scepter, the scepter is a, a kingly tool. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. Now remember this, this colt and this donkey image. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. This is about clothing that's purple. This is the clothing of royalty. But, but the, the more specific passage that the author is referencing, that the crowd would have remembered is Zechariah, Chapter 9, verse 9. Now, in order to understand that, we have to understand what what Zechariah is speaking to. If you look at Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, you have this remarkable scene. Zechariah is speaking about a time to come in which the situation of Israel is going to change. At the time when Zechariah is speaking, uh, the, the dynasty, the empire of Persia, is all over the known world. And Darius is its king. Uh, But the idea that Zechariah begins to prophesy is that the situation for Israel is going to change. And so in verses 1 through 7, it talks about a commander and a king that will come through and begin to punish the nations that oppose Yahweh. So it says this in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. We're not going to read them. But these are the cities that are going to come under judgment. Now, he speaks about Yahweh doing it. But Yahweh, as scholars would say, is going to use Alexander the Great 
as his tool to do this. When you read the history, you know that Alexander the Great is the one that defeats the empire of Persia and of Darius. And it mentions these cities, Hadrach, Damascus, Tyre, Sidon, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron. These are all cities along the Mediterranean. And one of those cities that's going to come next is Israel. And so at the time when we fast forward beyond the prophecy, we have this moment in which Alexander the Great is on a march. He's on a march taking over city after city. And his, his ambition is to take over the entire empire of Persia and to defeat Darius. And so he comes upon Israel and Israel, as you can imagine, nervous. They think that they are next. And so history records uh, that the high priest goes in the temple and begins to pray. And the high priest is given confidence to, to clothe himself in white and to take the people of Israel out to meet Alexander's army. And so Josephus, secular scholars and Christian scholars alike would say that Josephus is one of the predominant sources we have for first century history. He records the the words of Alexander the Great as this. One of the officers of Alexander the Great um, asks Alexander the Great, man, why didn't we take over Israel the way that we did the other cities? And Alexander says this, He says, I did not adore the high priest, but I adored the God who has honored him with that high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream in this very kind of space when I was at Dios in Macedonia, who when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia. So Alexander's considering how he might do this and he has this vision. He said, but now I see the person that I saw in my vision here and now. And remembering my vision and the exhortation which I had in my dream, which was to leave this particular city alone, I believe that by passing along and around this city, I bring this army under divine conduct and shall therewith conquer Darius and destroy the power of the Persians and that all things will succeed according to that which is in my own mind. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 8. After it speaks of the destruction of all of these cities, it says, And Yahweh will encamp around Israel. And no army will march around or in Israel, but will pass by, and Israel will be safe. This prophecy of Zechariah's hundreds of years earlier comes to pass. Alexander the Great, because of a vision he had, passes around Israel. He grants Israel autonomy, gives them the freedom to continue to worship and to pray, and to gather the way that they would. And Alexander the Great goes on to conquer the entire Persian Empire. And then when you begin to continue to read Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, talk about the destruction of these cities. Verse 8 talks about the safety of Israel because of Yahweh. And then it speaks about a king that will be Israel's king that isn't going to be Alexander on a war horse. He says this in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious. But not Alexander the Great on a war horse. Your king comes to you humble, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The gospel of Matthew says when this crowd sees this colt and this donkey coming to Jesus, it is to fulfill this prophecy. 
And then if you've ever been in like a, um, a, a, an, an episode or a season or a place in which somebody has done something great, have you ever been in a space where the crowd gets a little bit unruly and one person starts chanting speech, 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 and then the rest of the people, they join in, speech. And, and before you know it, the entire crowd is chanting speech, speech, speech. Have you ever been in that kind of scenario? A couple of us have been there. They're really fun, exuberant times. You can imagine the same kind of thing happens. You have hundreds of people surrounding Jesus. The anticipation level is rising. And one of them begins to quote a psalm. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then a few people around him chant, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And before you know it, the entire crowd is chanting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It comes from Psalm chapter 118, verse 25. Hosanna is simply a word that means save. Save us. Psalm chapter 118, verse 25 says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. When this Hebrew word for save is translated to the Greek, it's the word sozo. It's the same word used for save and salvation you find in the New Testament. And this word for sozo means save us from everything and anything. Save us from sin. Save us from evil. Save us from sickness and disease and poverty. Save us from Rome. Save us from our enemies. Completely save us and restore your creation. The Old Testament Psalm says, Lord, save us from everything. Grant us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. This became a prophecy for the Messiah that would be to come. A king that would totally and completely and 100% save Israel. And in this moment in the first century, the crowds of hundreds begin to chant and to sing this psalm around Jesus. And so the crowd continues to get out of control and they begin to take off their cloaks and as Jesus is riding on the donkey with the colt next to him, they begin to lay down their cloaks in front of the donkey. They are creating a, an Academy Awards red carpet, if you will, for the donkey to ride on. They're, they're doing this as an allusion to 2 Kings. Jehu is the new king of Israel. And Jehu is riding into the city. And all of the people of Israel, they take their cloaks off. They throw it before Jehu. And they say, Jehu, the new king of Israel. So as they begin to sing this psalm about the king that's coming to save, they participate in this prophetic gesture of laying their coats before the donkey. And then to take it even a step further, they begin to grab palm branches. And with the palm branches, they begin to wave the branches and to lay them down before Jesus. This is the kind of event that would have happened a couple of hundred years ago before Jesus. Between the Old Testament in the New Testament, uh, the descendants of Alexander the Great uh, were not so kind to Israel in the way that Alexander the Great was. They began to oppress Israel, begin to take away their rights of worship, begin to take away their autonomy, begin to do sacrilegious things in the temple. And so a revolt rises up. 
a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt. It's a violent revolt in Israel that is successful for a time. And in fact, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are historical books written about the events that happen here. And palm branches became a great sign of the Maccabean Revolt, in which Israel was once again gaining its autonomy and Yahweh was saving Israel. Uh, this is what one Maccabees, one of these historical books says. It says, on the 23rd day of the second month in the year 171, there was a great celebration in the city. Because this terrible threat to the security of Israel had come to an end. The threat they saw was the descendants of Alexander the Great. But it's come to an end. It says Simon, who was one of the Maccabeans, and his men, they entered the fort singing hymns of praise. Singing hymns of thanksgiving while carrying palm branches and playing harps and cymbals and lyres. This is the kind of scene that we are seeing around Jesus, riding in on a donkey next to a colt to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, riding on top of cloaks that are an allusion to 2 Kings and King Jehu, and here with palm branches that speak about the victory of the Maccabean revolt just about 100 years earlier. I mean, this is a celebration. This is a pep rally. This is a parade. This is Yahweh returning to Zion. This is the greatest Best news for this crowd. And Luke, when it records this event, it records something interesting that Jesus does. Jesus approaches the city. Hundreds of people surrounding him. Singing, chanting, on a donkey with cloaks. This would appear to be the finest moment for Jesus. But as he approaches Israel, Luke chapter 19 Verse 41 says, And Jesus came closer and closer to the city. And as Jesus was just outside of the city walls, it says he began to weep over the city. We're not talking about a tear. We're not talking about a little bit of crying. He began to weep over the city. He began to grieve over the city. If you've ever had a son or a daughter that has gone wayward, you know what it's like to grieve, even if you aren't a crier. If you've ever had a friend that has gone wayward, you know what it is to grieve, even if you aren't a crier. If you've ever had a mom or a dad or a grandparent go wayward, even though you aren't a weeper, you know what it is to grieve because you want the best for your son or your daughter. You want the best for your friend. You want the best for your parents. Jesus is in the same boat. He begins to weep over Jerusalem and he says this, if only you knew today what would bring you peace. If only you knew today what would bring you healing. If only you knew today what would bring you safety. If only you knew today what would bring you God's shalom. If only you knew you would act differently. The one thing Jesus knows is that leading up to this moment, he's been teaching about the kingdom of God. He's been teaching about God's shalom. Following his procession into Jerusalem, he will be in the temple, continuing to teach about the kingdom of God and this new way of living. But Jesus begins to weep because he knows that as much as they are going to hear his words, they aren't going to do his words. One of the major 
encouragements for Jesus to his disciples was, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. Jesus begins to weep because the words of life are right in front of them. God's son, God's Messiah is right in front of them. The way to wholeness and healing and peace and shalom is right in front of them. But the very people who see him now will turn on him later. In fact, Jesus says this about discipleship. He says this about the words of life. This is a a popular phrase that we know. We oftentimes speak about it out of context. But he says this in John chapter 8, verse 31. He says, so Jesus said to those who believed in him, if you obey my teaching, not just hear my teaching, not just mentally know my teaching, not just be able to recite my teaching, but to those who obey my teaching, to those who practice my teaching, to those who do my teaching, you're the ones that are actually my disciples. Disciples meaning disciplined ones. People that are disciplined enough to do the teachings of Jesus day in and day out. If you do these things, if you obey these things, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, oftentimes we like to quote the second verse. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. If you just know the truth, the truth will set you free. And and so we, we become bent on simply gaining access to information. We think that if we just know more and more, then we will be free. But that's not the way the gospel works. For Jesus, knowing the truth wasn't being able to recite the words of Jesus particularly. It wasn't being able to just listen to the words of Jesus. To know the truth was to experience the formative power of his words. And the only way to experience the formative power of his words was to obey them. It was to do them. I'm 6'6". I'm super unflexible. Uh, I remember being a young kid. My parents would take me to the doctor, even in the first grade. The doctor said, you got to know, your kid, he can't even touch his toes. Like he should be able to touch his toes. And so from an early age, I was coached Austin You need to stretch. If you want to be flexible, you need to stretch. If you want to stay injury-free, you need to stretch. If you want to have a, a long, mobile, healthy life into your later years, you need to stretch. This is something that I know. What I don't know is I haven't quite experienced the formative power of that practice because I don't stretch. I was with Larry Satig on the sidewalk a few minutes ago. I couldn't touch my toes. I just can't do it. Now, I've done it for seasons. There have been small seasons of my life where I've spent about 10 minutes every single evening stretching while I watch TV. And after about a week of doing that, I can begin to touch my toes. Now, that knowledge of knowing that if I stretch day in and day out, my health and my mobility and my my ability to have a long life later on is going to increase. I've experienced that in spurts. But simply knowing my whole life, the knowledge... That if I want to be flexible and healthy, I need to stretch. Simply knowing that hasn't transformed my life. In seasons of transformation, what has transformed my life is actually doing what the doctor 
asked me to do. It was obeying his words. It was putting them into practice. Austin, if you only knew what would bring you flexibility, you'd do it. You'd stretch. Austin, if you only knew what would bring you a long life, you'd go to the gym and you'd work out. Disciples, if you only knew the things that would bring you real, abundant life, you would do them. And when you begin to do them, you experience the transformative power of the words of Jesus in your life. And when that happens, it sets us free. The life of discipleship, the life of following Jesus, the life of obeying the words of Jesus is not a restricting life. It's not a life of slavery. It's not a life of being down because you don't have access to other things. The life of discipleship, the gospel say, is actually a deeply liberating life. It's a life of freedom. It's a life free from greed for generosity. A life free from indifference for love. It's a life free of selfishness to selflessness. It's a life in which we become more human. You see, Jesus weeps over the city. He weeps over the city because he knows they aren't going to put his words into practice. And it's only going to be a small group of people that experience the the transformative power of the gospel. It's about 12, and it will spread out to be thousands, and then hundreds of thousands, and then a nationwide, worldwide movement. But, but I think the encouragement for us today is, do we know the things that will bring us peace? Do we know the things that will bring peace to our marriages? Do we know the things that will bring peace to our singleness? Do we know the things that will bring peace to our workplace and to our schools? And to our, do we know these things? See, if we just know them here, but we don't practice it, Jesus weeps and he grieves because he desires for his people to live a life of freedom, a robust life of God's abundant life. And so I, I think a great first step for beginning to, to begin to unpack this is prayer. Uh, throughout all of the, the scriptures, the Holy Spirit has always been the catalyst for transformation. It's always been the catalyst for formation. If you're sitting here today and you know there's a space where you need God's peace, you need his wholeness, and you know where it is, you just don't know that first practical step to take yet. There are people in that backhand corner that would love to pray with you. We also know that there are people all in our city that don't quite know what they need for peace. They don't have access to a robust church like Evie Free. Or the discipline of being a part of a faith family just hasn't been put into them. And so we want to continue to love on our city. To say, city, Fullerton, Brea, Yorba Linda, Placentia, there is a way to peace. There is a better way to live. And so part of the way we do that is we give to our compassion fund once a month. So as you leave, there are going to be people there collecting for the compassion fund. And finally, we know that Europe, as Larry talked about earlier, it's, it's an interesting space right now. It's a space in which, in which people need to know there's a better way to live. 
they need to know what will bring them peace. And Jesus alone is our peace. And so this summer, we're sending over hundreds and hundreds of people to minister there. So if you want to know how you can be a part via either going yourself, helping send people, being a prayer partner, there's a plaza outside. They'd love to get you connected. This is the best news in the world, that we can have an abundant full life and that we can live a free life if we will simply learn to be the kinds of people that are faithful to obey day in and day out the teachings of Jesus. This is great news. Can we stand together? As we go, go with this blessing. May the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he turn his face towards you and be gracious to you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You guys have a great afternoon.